This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au. Hawthorne should be focusing on keeping everything absolutely stable. We are as one. We will follow processes. We will follow what is appropriate. We will not take sides. We will let the voting of the members unfold as it should rightly without influencing anybody. There is a sense of we need to get this story first. But they're so careful, Corrie. I'm just like, for heaven, just press send. They took days after I would have done it. It's a real cloak and dagger, great investigative journalism story. Gosh, if they could keep going and just predict what's going to happen to Prince George and Charlotte. She looks like she'll be a bit of a rebel at school, I would think, the naughty teenager. I know a friend who lives around the corner from me who kept a Christmas tree up so beautiful for the whole year oh, and no. just rolled it on. No, no, you can't <laughs> Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkins. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Corey Perkin. This is episode 245. And I'm in the studio, but our dear friend and fellow podcaster, Caroline Wilson, is remote. Is remotely. You're not, you're not remote. You're very close to our hearts, but you're actually physically remote, Caro. I'm out of town, Corey, taking a very short break, but I am as enthused as ever, because I've seen a fabulous film that I really want to talk about with you. I'm extremely concerned about your football club, your football club, and um, its upcoming, its election, which is proving more fascinating to me than the Victorian state election, I have to say, even more scandalous and controversial. And um, you've got some views about a certain nomination that happened a few days ago, and you've read a fabulous new book and spoken to the author. I have indeed. We have lots on the show today, uh, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And, of course, Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store will be coming in. And speaking of Prince Wine Store, together with our friends at Red Energy, they are the sponsors of our little podcast, and we thank them very much for their ongoing support. Caro, speaking of Red Energy, we have a Red Energy uh, invitation to our listeners to come and join Caro and I in the studio for our last podcast, our final podcast for 2022. Uh, morning tea we're serving, Caro, on Wednesday the 14th of December at 10.15 in the morning at our South Bank Studios here at SEN. And you can be part of the recording for that morning. So you can come along, you can meet our special guests. After the recording, we'll have a cup of tea with everyone. You can ask us any questions if you like or not. Um, I'm sure Anna from the op shop, we're hoping Anna will be there, Anna Barry. She may tell you for, I think, the fifth year in a row about her turkey brining secrets. Not sure, but... <laughs> well, they work. They do work. I can test. I can attest. They do work. Um, so if you'd like to join us, we have a few tickets left, uh, not many but a few, uh, and tickets are limited because of the space in the foyer just outside our studio. So you can book your ticket via the link in the show notes. If you're having trouble accessing that, just contact Miss Jane, our producer, Jane Neald, if you have any questions, and you can contact Jane at feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. That's feedback at don'tshootpod.com. Caro, a couple of little items in the mailbag today. Julia Burgess contacted us via email to say, Caroline's list of annoying jobs resonated with me, but there is one that I no longer have to do. Lots of people ask me what is the best thing about my new electric car. I always reply, I don't have to spend time each week filling it up. (laughs) Which was one of your annoying things from last week. Julie, that's perfect. I'm, I can, I mean, putting petrol in the car, isn't that, because it, it's, you know, we're also used to multitasking as women and um, maybe some men, but there's nothing much else you can do when you're putting petrol in the car. You're not allowed to talk on the phone, you know, following that myth that, you know, your head might explode. I don't think it's a myth. <laughs> and you can't read, I mean, you just can't do anything else and you're standing there thinking this is five minutes, I'll never get back. My great friend, um, Dot Leslie, her mother Norma has never once put petrol in her car. How does she avoid that? She's avoided it at her ninetieth. Dot um, dot um, mentioned that as one of the tributes to her mum. Corrie, just a little apology from me. 
um, and our friend Sal Howe, great friend of the podcast, pointed this out. And I realised it as min- the minute I got to the end of um, Series 5 of The Crown, there's another series to go. We all thought it was the last one, but it's not. I got to um, the final show, and without too much of a spoiler alert, Diana's still alive. Now, clearly, <laughs> clearly we know what happens there. I hate to, I'm not laughing at what was a terrible tragedy, but... I got to the end and went, what? And Sal said, no, 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 no. Series six is being made or is, is about to start or has already started. And um, it's got this pretty much the same cast. And series five ended on a bit of a whimper. And there's even talk, despite originally saying there wouldn't be a series seven, that there might be a series seven. So the most interesting thing about series six is that it'll be the first series of The Crown produced after the death of Queen Elizabeth II. So I just thought, um, I'm sorry, everyone, if you thought that you were watching the last series, thanks to my very poor research, you're not. Series, so if, if there was a Series 7, that would take us right up to current day, Megan and Harry and Kate and Will's. Gosh, if they could keep going and just predict what's going to happen to Prince George and Charlotte, she looks like she'll be a bit of a rebel at school, I would think, the naughty teenager. And Louis, who's probably destined for a career on the stage, I think. Oh, do you think he'll write a book called Spare? Oh, no, that will, no, he'll be the no, third. No, that would be Charlotte. It? Charlotte it, will have to changed. write. Charlotte will it's have to cha- write the book called but, Spare. But um, I, I think the other thing is that Megan and Harry have um, proved themselves to be fairly litig- litigious, more litigious than any other members of the royal family. So I wouldn't be um, suggesting that to Peter Morgan. Well, on the, on the topic of the Crown, Caro, uh, we have an Instagram message from Yvette1804. And she said she absolutely agreed with our review of The Crown. Shocking casting, but still enjoyed watching. And from from Joanne Van Homrig, also on our Don't Shoot Pod Instagram account. Hi, Caro and Corrie. Your invitation to join the podcast reminds me how close we are to the end of the year. I think she means the podcast event. And she goes on, another year of me listening every week from Brisbane. Thank you, Melbourne ladies, for enlightening me with every week with your thoughts, comments and recommendations. Joanne, it is our pleasure. If Carol and I did not have a podcast, we would still be yakking on like this. The fact that we can share it with all of you is really fun. And we get a few extra tips along the way because you all write in and please, everybody, we do love when you write in either on the Instagram account or, of course, to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Now, Caro, let's get on to this civil war at the Hawthorne Football Club. I have been immersed in it, but this is certainly your patch, your territory, and I need you to help me plough through the quagmire of um, Jeff Kennett versus uh, versus most of the Hawthorne membership. But um, I wondered if you can just bring us up to speed. The Age on the weekend uh, wrote, the battle for power at Hawthorne has erupted into civil war with club greats and former presidents taking sides amid increasing divisions. Now, this, of course, is not a new phenomenon to AFL football, Caro. We've seen it over the years, but sadly also we've, also, we've seen whenever there has been a civil war at a club, the on-field performance in the years that follow is generally pretty poor and I wondered if the two are connected or what your thoughts are. Tell us what's been happening. And it's it's been pretty poor for several years, Corrie, hasn't it? Um, so the Clarkson years ended badly. Alistair Clarkson, you know, refused to see that Hawthorne needed to rebuild. Their recruiting was among the worst in the AFL in his last few years and they wasted a few years, to be frank. There was obviously battle for power between Clarkson and Sam Mitchell ended badly. Um, it was probably the right result with Sam Mitchell taking over as coach, but the club ended up having to pay on Jeff Kennett's watch, Alistair Clarkson, around nine, sorry, $1 million to leave for that last year of his contract. So that was the first thing that was bad. Tasmania is obviously a big question mark for Hawthorne now. I mean, they might get one more deal before Tasmania gets their own team, but that's a big revenue loser. The club is moving again. They moved, of course, from Glenferry Oval to Waverley, what was it, about 20 years ago. Um, Now they're moving out to Dingley in what I fear will be a massive white elephant. I think clubs that do this 
and Essendon's done it, and you go to these places, Corrie, St Kilda did obviously failed dismally and ended up back at Moorabbin millions of wasted dollars later and wasted years later. Um, I just feel that they lose their soul and um, in, in the name of better, you know, better facilities. Jeff Kennett is leaving finally. Um, he took a long time to finally announce he was leaving. He changed the constitution that he put in place to come back in, in his mind, to save the club. And basically, it's um, his nominated successor, although he's denying that he nominated him, Peter Nankerville, is hoped to come in as president unopposed. Step in, enter Andy Gowers, who was part of the nominations committee looking for new presidential talent. He's standing against Nankerville, saying Nankerville should never have stood because Nankerville himself was going to um, be part of the nominations committee. And he's sort of, it's a bit like that Andrew Thorburn at Essendon, you know, helping the club find a new CEO and then well, taking the job. Caro, wasn't he, wasn't Nankerville in fact in charge of the committee? And, yes. And, and he yep. should have recused himself, surely. Well, he's explained himself as to why he didn't. The ongoing dodgy allegations are that nominations were only announced on the day they closed that night. So anyone who did want to nominate for the board only had hours to do so. Um, the club has denied this, but it, it smells bad, Corrie. Hawthorne are also under fire from the rest of the competition because of their handling of these shocking First Nations allegations. Um, Jeff Kennett and his role in that, I mean, I think he's escaped a lot of scrutiny Um the AFL is furious that Hawthorne sort of basically threw the allegations over to them and did nothing. The other clubs say that they were not given the heads up and their practices were also questioned because, you know, North Melbourne and Brisbane lost their coaches for a few months and they had no idea this was about to happen. But what you've got is now, as you mentioned, former champions and presidents, Chris Langford came out with a pretty explosive series of allegations about Jeff Kennett and described his... Well, he said Kennett was um, acting straight out of Putin's playbook. He talked about um, almost a government media machine running the club. Interestingly, it, it's fallen a bit on party lines with Jeff, obviously, a Liberal. Um, one of the um, new um, challenges to the board, James Molino, obviously Labor, it's interesting, Corrie, because Andy Gowers has even come out and said, listen, I'm a Liberal voter. I, I work at, you know, I've been there handing out how to vote cards. And Matt Dixon, who is now the club's media executive, highly respected, you know, when he worked for the um, Daniel Andrews government. So you've got people like Don Scott saying, I'm worried that a bunch of Labor voters are going to take over the club, which is patently nonsense. I just can't believe this has happened. And so soon after this unbelievably great era, but this is often what happens when long-term coaches leave. It all does tend to rather fall apart and those coaches have stayed too long. And presidents, dare I say, Caro, it is a, an incredibly bewildering scenario, isn't it? You're a supporter, but you're not a member. It looks like Jeff is, you know, doing the old scorched earth policy, isn't he? Just... It almost feels like a bomb's been thrown on the place as he leaves. Do you want to rejoin as a member now, seeing all this unfold? Well, I have to say that I feel very comfortable with Andy Gowers and I know that um, he has a lot of support both within the organisation and also amongst the membership. Will his pitch for um, old-fashioned values, such as getting back to the Hawthorne is the family club, will this work? I don't know. The whole dingly thing makes me... I agree with you, Cara. It fills me with absolute dread. It reminds me so much of Waverley, which ended up just so confusing for the Hawthorne brethren in the early 2000s, just kind of ditching our traditional heartland of Glenferry Road. Waverley created a character of its own to a degree... And the club had some of its most successful years there. And getting there was not nearly as problematic as getting to Dingley for that, most people. That's right. And I often think of players, particularly younger ones, they might not have cars or they live in inner Melbourne because they are young and they can and they do. And getting out to Dingley for training but also fitness sessions and, and meetings with coaches, it's pretty much, isn't it, it really is a pretty much a full-time job being a player when you're at the club, you are, you are, you do spend a lot of time actually at the club in training facilities. Look, I think these satellite I, my, facilities, I don't like them. I don't like I, them. I, I agree. And, and, 
And I look and I look at you know Collingwood went in a city. It was a great move. Richmond, their facilities are nowhere near as good as most of the competitions. And I see they're doing another renovation now. But you know it, it doesn't matter. They stayed when they finally did win a premiership. They were right next door. And all of you saw what happened with all of Richmond. I mean, it just completely erupted. It had the the atmosphere and joy around that premiership and the other thing is Corey of course because and who knows whether this is true but they need a lot more money to pay for the community facility and Jeff Kennett's late night tweets about the uh, state Labor government mm. probably haven't helped his good helped his well no, that's another thing members must be looking at that wondering I'm sorry but your partiality has possibly potentially cost us some funding in this regard Caro the thing I think the thing about this um this this the AGM is going to be very interesting. And the thing that sticks in my craw is the governance here. So as you said earlier, the the idea um, that Peter Nankerville can actually be um, in charge of the committee that is looking into the succession planning for the president. Now, I don't know how it actually works at Hawthorne because every board is different and football clubs do have different processes. But I imagine that you have it that, that the board that the on the board positioning the president has its has its own uh, its its own position. And you vote for president and then you vote for all the board members, uh, the the nominations for those spots that are available. Other organisations off field, like out of football as well, will often select their chairman or their president from within the board. So you vote. Oh, the that's board what on. generally happens at football clubs. Yeah. So no. so so I just um, I, I felt that um, Nankerville should have as I said, recused himself for the process the very second he thought that he might like to do this job or, the, or whether Jeff tapped him on the shoulder or they had a conversation. I don't know how it unfolded. As we know, a few months ago, the board came out and said that they were 100% behind Peter Nankerville's nomination. I don't know whether that's appropriate. It should be a democratic process, Caro, surely, that all members have the right to vote for whoever is, uh, is, not, is put themselves forward to become president no, without fear or favour. If Andy Gowes wins, then he will clearly become president if he gets a spot on the board. And as we speak today, we don't know the results of the election. Um, that might become apparent fairly soon. But, you know, big announcements being made, club announcements in the time of an election has also been seen to be pretty biased towards the incumbent. Um, and also, of course, um, some of the um, club paraphernalia and material that is being used to support, according to the opposition, those incumbents. So this is not a pretty story. No, and it and should be more democratic. And also, let's not forget that we have an independent investigation that's going on into allegations of past racism. So as this is all unfolding, which must create such mayhem within the organisation and concern about what's happening at board level, we also have this independent investigation. Surely, of all times in its career, in its in its history, I should say, Hawthorne should be focusing on keeping everything Absolutely stable. We are as one. We will follow processes. We will follow what is appropriate. We will not take sides. We will let the voting of the members unfold as it should rightly without influencing anybody. And the fact that they have this independent investigation going on as well, that should be their focus and they should be learning the lessons of not interfering because that didn't work last time. Well, Jeff Kennett's first era as president, you would say... I felt ended successfully, but you couldn't say that about his second era. It's been it's been an unmitigated disaster in its final years. And speaking of presidents, Corrie, I, I felt the Donald Trump announcement in recent days was pretty underwhelming and fell a bit flat. It fell a bit flat. So as we know, everybody, Donald Trump announced last week um, from his uh, Florida resort, Mar-a-Lago, that he was going to put himself up as the presidential candidate for 2024, which I suspect has filled his Republican colleagues with absolute horror because there is nothing they can do about it. Interesting timing, I thought, given that the Republicans' performances in the midterms uh, elections last week, the week before last, were uh, was uh, was underwhelming, or wasn't it wasn't the red wave that many pundits were predicting, and I think uh, most of the candidates that endorsed Donald Trump's election fraud, uh, 
kind of took on his mantra, most of those who are unsuccessful in their attempts to become governor or uh, indeed a seat in the Senate or in Congress. So, Caro, you could effectively say that Donald Trump has lost the last three elections. The, uh, of course, he won the presidency in 2016. The Republicans lost the midterms in 2018, and then of course he lost the presidential election in 2020. He's had yet an, you know, f- filed yet another unsuccessful campaign. Why on earth would you want him leading the ticket? Who can possibly take him on? Who would dare? Because of course, with Donald Trump and all his craziness comes his crazy base, and they are a pretty powerful lot, as we know. There's been some discussion. Mike Pence may stand, the former vice president. That would be an interesting. Uh, to see them both on the podium going head for head as uh, as they as they do American style they have their debates between the candidates because of course as we know on January 6th at Capitol Hill the noose that was supposed to go around Mike Pence's neck um, was a traumatic moment for the vice president as he fled for his life Florida governor Ron DeSantis seems to be the front runner at the moment although he hasn't put his hand up yet uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, we know, is a very ambitious person. And Nikki Haley, the former ambassador to the UN under Donald Trump, she did say a few months ago that if Donald Trump um, said that he would stand again, she would not challenge the former president, but perhaps there'll be a bit of pressure on her to stand because she's quite charismatic and very smart. And uh, middle America uh, might actually warm to Nikki Haley. That might be a possibility. But gosh, it's been a really interesting week with Donald Trump throwing a cat among the pigeons there. You know, I'm just sick of hearing him and I really hope that um, it continues to fall flat and he goes away, although I can't quite see that happening. And he's back on Twitter as of yesterday. Yep, good old Elon Musk is um, allowing freedom of speech. And, Cara, we should honour the amazing career, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, in her 80s, an extraordinary achievement, regarded by most of the political reporters that I value as being, they have said that she is, she's is. she been the most effective speaker in American history. She worked very closely with Barack Obama. She worked close as close as she could with the Trump administration. And, of course, the last couple of years under Joe Biden, she's an extraordinary woman. As we know, her husband was uh, attacked a few weeks ago, ended up in hospital uh, with, with a pro-Trump, anti-Nancy intruder in their home. It was a shocking episode, but uh, Nancy Pelosi will be greatly missed and what an extraordinary legacy she leaves us. And I think we should have a toast to Nancy, Carol. I think we should bring in the cocktail cabinet and have a glass of rosé with Miles Thompson. Caro, we have with us in the studio, of course, uh, as we have most weeks, really, and particularly recently, Miles, you've you've stopped phoning in and you're coming in on your bike to visit us, which we love. Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store. Hello. Well, it's, it's on the way, so it's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> and we much prefer to see you than talk to you on the telephone. Miles, today we are going to talk about Caro's favourite uh, wine, rosé, not the most favourite of mine, although I am coming around to um, a couple of the drier ones like a- AIX and also on the oh, yeah. night of our recent wine tasting with Don't Shoot the Messenger, you had a lovely rosé there. Yeah, the Vas Felix. That was, was very good. It was really nice. Even I, might... I was a bit surprised. I mean, I'd had it before, but, you know, sometimes you try a wine and then you're like, oh, that's really good. And then you sort of try it again and you're like, oh, maybe it's not as good as I remember or the other way around. And it was one of those the other way around where I was just like, oh, it's even better than I remember. Nice surprise. Mm. Caro, did you try the rosé at the wine tasting? Well, Corrie, what would you think? <laughs> I thought you did. You... She bought 10 bottles. Of course bottles. I did. Oh, I bought, oh, and good. not only did I try the Vest Felix, I thought it was such a good price. Oh, you did. Under, tw- under $20 on the night, but I think I might have purchased half a dozen bottles, Corrie. Cheap. Um, so tell us about, Value, the, about your, your rosé recommendations um, for today, Miles. So I've got two, one a little more, more, one good value, one a little more premium. So the first one is called Fontaglione, and it's actually a, an Italian risotto. Um, so, you, you know, you didn't see a lot of Italian rosé styles, you know, maybe 10 years ago, but it's certainly becoming more popular. I think it's a market-driven thing. Um, but I think it's great. A lot of them 
com- are coming out of that sort of that that sort of Tuscan region, or certainly around there. So a lot of them are based around Sangiovese, and it's a good grape for rosé. It's already kind of pale. It has this lovely sort of savoury edge and this kind of cherry thing going on. I think it works really well for rosé. This has mainly Sangiovese and a little bit of Merlot as well, just to sort of flesh it out. It's a little bit more sort of warm. You know, it's got that real Tuscan sort of feel to it, that lovely sort of that fresh cherry fruit, but that lovely warmth to it as well. But nice and dry. Sangiovese has this lovely sort of savoury sort of like kind of leather sort of edge to it that's really lovely. And it sort of takes that on in the rosé to a degree. So it has this lovely sort of, yeah, just this more savoury sort of bent to it rather than just all sweet sort of fruited that you might expect. This sounds like something I might like myself. Oh, it's very good. Yeah. And it's $20 and we've got the rosé and sausages event on Thursday. Rose, I'm not sure sorry, when this okay, is coming okay. out. Okay, rosé and sausages. <laughs> That's an interesting mix. Oh, we've been doing it for a long time. So tell us about the rosé and sausages event. Uh, so it is exactly what you might think it is. It's a bunch of rosés. I think we've got about 41 this year. And we we usually get the snags from gamekeepers, um, who are sort of friends of ours, and we put on some gourmet snags. They're not just cheap sort of coal snags. Not that there's anything wrong with that, uh, but nice gourmet snags. And you come along, you get a piece of bread, you have a sausage, and you try a bunch of rosé. Oh, one of my grandchildren on the weekend, we cooked up sausages, and they said. Mopsy, is this the one with the lamb and fennel? I thought, gee, we've come a long way, haven't we? Lamb and since fennel. The, since That's the old so beef. <laughs> the old beef, you know. Yeah, well, actually, it was. Thank you, Harriet. But that was very interesting. Good pick. Hey, um, so the rosé and sausage event, as you point out, um, by the time some potties are listening to the, to this, the event might have been over. But what is the date and what time? So it's five thirty till seven thirty. It's Thursday, the twenty fourth. Um, the offer, though, so we always do a nice big offer for that. Will be on the website. So. The prices that I'll sort of talk about today will be even more than the ten percent listener discount. Right. So there'll be fifteen percent off. So that risotto will be instead of twenty, I think it'll be about seventeen dollars. So it makes it super super value. Same price as that Vas Felix. Fantastic. So that's the Fonte Leone. Yep. What's the uh, What's the second one you have in the box for us? So the other one is called Fig- Figures. I'm probably gonna spell. So F I G U I R E S. If you're French, Figuier, I think it might be. Yeah. So oh, the, I'll, I'll be, I'll, I'll stand to be corrected. Sure, I will too. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's their they, uh, Mediterranean rosé, which just is just a larger sort of appellation catch-all for for rosés that are made in that Provence style in the sort of greater sort of southeast region of 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 France. Um, we had this the other day, and it was just so delicious. I was just like, I have to talk about it on the podcast because yep. it was just fantastic. Okay, so what's the damage? So that one's thirty six, and that'll be thirty thirty with the special discount for for the night. And that 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 offer runs for about a week, so you'll have plenty of time to stock up on rosé. Caro, can you tell me why it's you like so rosé? Can you mount the argument for rosé? Well, it reminds me of summer would be the short answer. The sure. longer answer is that growing up, um, when my mother first started having, you know, a glass of wine with a friend or at the end of the day in these very old-fashioned shaped wine glasses, Kaiserstuhl Rosé was just something she drank and she'd only just have a glass and it always looked so pretty um, then, of course, um, as you know, we, we all discovered the Matus Rosé, which came in that famous bottle. And then when I moved to London, Corrie, and lived with um, my friend Virginia in those early years in Earl's Court, I remember coming home one day from work and she was sitting on our tiny balcony. It was a beautiful, one of those beautiful English London summer days, drinking a, a Rosé d'Anjou. And I just thought that to me, just encapsulated London in the summer. So it's as much the image as anything else. And then, of course, visiting France and trying all those beautiful rosés from Provence. Mm. I don't know. It just um, – and, I mean, now it's funny, isn't it, Miles? You mentioned pale, and whenever you go out and order one, you always ask to see the see the colour of it because sure. for some reason a darker rosé brings back – Bad memory, bad memories, for some reason. But and and you know they are some of them are very expensive. Like you mentioned, the figuier, which sounds beautiful. Um, that's 
cheaper than the um, Whispering Angel that seems to be the premium at the moment. Would that be right? Yeah, that's that's one of the premiums. And there's there's Bandol, which is a region that's a little bit west of that, tends to make a richer sort of more full style, quite long lived. And, you know, they can sort of start at $50, $60. And we've got a bunch that are sort of $50, $60, $70 as well. They're getting up there. I do have a friend um, that um, famously rather cruelly calls rosé Lady Petrol and uh, <laughs> and other drinks and other um, rather nasty comments, you know, when summer comes. And, of course, Corey, you will remember me drinking rosé in a can down in Cornwall on a trip one year. But um, Very no, I just think it's a lovely, refreshing summer drink. Mm, okay, well, I will. I, I will give it a go. I concur. As I said, I, the the only one that so far that I have enjoyed, apart from the one we had, um, the Vas Felix, is a a i x. Yeah, so that's a really traditional Provence style. That sort of pale salmon, or they call it onion skin. But the the nice Provence rosés and and the good rosés in general, they have a sort of lightness to them, but they also have a lovely sort of textural element. Like they have a often this kind of like slippery sort of feel to them that gives them a slightly more serious kind of bent than you might think. You know, just cheap and cheerful mm. pink pink sort of pink gear for a hot day, which I also think is just as fantastic. You know, it doesn't all have to be serious. So isn't it interesting too, Caro, with rosé um, and Miles that so often the labels are very pretty. Mm. They're often yes. quite botanical and flowery, don't you think? My father um, brings a jerry bomb of X to uh, Christmas every year, and it always Perfect. manages to get finished. Get finished, funnily, yeah. funnily enough. People go, oh, "I don't really but... like rosé," and you see them slogging a few glasses <laughs> quite happily. Because it's perfect for that sort of. St- I I agree with you that warm weather and. Yeah, they're great. They're actually, I think they're great food wines too. That's that's been my thing for a while. I think they go well with a lot of food, barbecues or whatever yeah, you're doing. Really, Do you know, salads like they can kind of go light. They I, can go something I a bit heavier. Right. I think you're right, Miles. I think this is why I'm not such a rosé fan because I'm not mad on it as a single drink. If you arrive at someone's house or something, and you know, do you want a glass sure. of wine? So you're not eating anything. I, I don't. I'm not comfortable with rosé in that scenario. Whereas I'd quite happily have a riesling on the rocks or something like that. Sure. I'll I tell whatever. you, um, the other night, Corrie, um, I, someone had bought a particularly dark and not that nice a rosé, and, of course, you know, it just sits in the fridge forever and ever. I've started slogging it into the bolognese or the chilli or anything I'm cooking. Oh, there you <laughs> go. Risotto. Mm. <laughs> it comes up a treat for cooking. Mm. They're the darker ones. But, um, Miles, they sound brilliant. And yeah, they're the, lovely. Um, is it the Fontaleanto? Fontaleone. Fontaleone, the Italian risotto. Fontaleone. So from, from Tuscany. The, yeah, from the Sangiovese area and uh, $20 for that. And uh, the Figuia, we think is how yeah. we're pronouncing it, which is the Provence-style Provence, Provence um, uh, rosé from the southeast region of France. That is $36, although with the rosé and sausage discount I'm not sure you're calling it that are you well we just every, all the offers we do from the from the larger tastings they all get so 15% rose, off okay, yeah so this one will offer. get 15% yeah so, so the rosé offer so how do rosé and sausages how do messengers find uh, the offer so if you just go to the website you'll see a tab at the top called current offers and if you click on that that'll be up there in the next couple of days and it'll be up there for the next week or two Wonderful. So that is at princewinestore.com.au. Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store, thanks so much for coming in on your bike again. We oh, love seeing you in person. Uh, and next week, Jane might have a bit to tell us about Prosecco. She's been on the newsbeat. We'll mm. talk about that next week. Perhaps, Caro, next week we might have a look at Prosecco. What do you think? We might. We sure. might even um, talk about the perfect Aperol Spritz. Sure. Great. Okay, fantastic. Well, there you go. That's there's, easy. There's another topic. Thanks, Miles. Thank you. Corey, it's time to talk BSF. You did an event uh, last week, I think it was, with Thomas Keneally and talked about his new book. Tell me about the book and how the, it was at the Paran, South Yarra Library. South, South Yarra Library. And uh, we had about 100 people there. So that's, I think, been a wonderful venue for us, Cara, for, for the Corrie's Reading events. And we'll be having many more. And in fact, in February, we will be having John Boyne the internationally acclaimed writer. You'll remember the boy in the striped pyjamas, Caro? 
Yes, yes. Yeah. Very, so very he, sad book. So he has, a, film. he has a new book. He's doing an Australian tour and we're going to be entertaining him in a couple of months. So if you don't already follow Corey is reading on the Instagram account, that's the best way to find out what we're up to. But, yes, Tom Keneally was great. He's in great form. He's 87 years of age. This is... If you add in the novels that he writes with his daughter, Meg, this must be probably his 65th or 70th book, Caro, uh, fiction and non-fiction. He's one of our greatest writers and, of course, he won the Booker Prize for his remarkable Schindler's Ark, which then became Schindler's, Schindler's List um, in the 1980s, in 1982 uh, he won that. He won the Booker Prize, so he really is remarkable. And I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed his new book, which is called Fanatic Heart. Now, Tom has a real thing about uh, about convict history in Australia. Uh, many of his books have been placed uh, in that late 18th century, early 19th century uh, Australian time zone, and they are all thoroughly enjoyable. Fanatic Heart is the fictional account of a real-life hero of history, Irish activist John Mitchell, Mitchell with one L, who was transported firstly to Bermuda and then to Van Diemen's Land in the 1840s, 1830s, 1840s. And then he later left Australia with his wife and family uh, and moved to America and and became one of those key figures in that whole Irish diaspora to America. And as you probably know, Carol, and certainly your husband with his Irish background would know this too, that there was a real force in the US, although it wasn't the United States at that time, but there was a real force to send money home to Ireland to try and um, liberate the Irish from the increasingly intolerant uh, English um, you know, and 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 the the politics of of Ireland was all based firmly in Westminster, so they really had no say of their own. So the American Irish worked hard on this, and a big part of this book, at the back of the book, is actually dedicated to this. It's most interesting. But we start in Ireland. Um, John uh, Mitchell is a lawyer. He is the son of a Protestant vicar. He he works a lot in uh, in the not for profit sector we would call it these days. But he becomes increasingly alarmed and saddened by the plight of Irish people, in particular the Catholics, and <coughs> who, who have no ties with Britain and are isolated from all sorts of structures of political um, decision-making and he decides to pick up the cause and he starts writing rather uh, provocative editorials and becomes a full-time journalist. He has a beautiful wife, Jenny Caro, and here this love story actually I think is the thing that gives this book real heart and substance. She was a remarkable woman. They had several children and even when he was transported, she jumped on a ship a couple of years later to join him. So their their love and respect for one another really is uh, adds an extra dimension to this story. It's a fabulous story of escapes, uh, long sea journeys, um, confrontations with the law, funny moments, and particularly, as Tom Keneally said in his interview the other day, the focus has, of this book had to be on the Irish rebellion that happened outside Ireland. So I really enjoyed it. And I think your husband, Brendan, would actually enjoy Fanatic Heart as well. Really good summer read. Sounds fabulous. So I'll loan you my copy. Or maybe you'd like tip. to give it to him, put it in a, buy what buy him a copy and put it in his Christmas stocking. Very good tip. We're talking Christmas in a moment, believe it or oh, yeah, not. I know, can you believe? Uh, now, screen, Caro, you went off to see She Said. I'm dying to hear this review. I did, I did. And um, Anna from the op shop reminded me, which made me laugh, that when we went to the movies last week with our girls, Coco thought the movie we were seeing, What's Love Got to Do With It, was in fact She Said. <laughs> <laughs> so Coco Carter might have been a little bit surprised. Um, look, this is a great film. It's um, the story of the two New York Times journos who broke the Harvey Weinstein story right. and, won a, and won a Pulitzer Prize for their efforts. So it, it's very much, um, it's a great 
another great film about newspapers, a more modern film about newspapers in the sort of realms of, in the genre of Spotlight, which of course focused on the Catholic Church in Boston and all the president's men and the post, which we absolutely loved. This is the New York Times. Uh, the two journos, Jody Canto, is played brilliantly by Zoe Kazan, Megan Tui by Kerry Mulligan. Oh. They're both they're both very, very good. Zoe Kazan in particular really resonated with me. They're young women, they're working mothers with their own issues at home. Kerry Mulligan, who has spoken about her battle with postnatal depression back in um, around 2015-16, her character Megan suffers postnatal depression in this film, but that isn't sort of dwelt upon, but you do see that side of their lives and they're very supportive partners. Um, But this is a story really of the victims who finally finally agreed to go on the record and this is a story of the battle to get them to speak publicly the film opens the the character that really resonated with me and the actor who really resonated with me um she plays laura madden the irish woman who was one of the first to come out and put her name to allegations against Weinstein. She's played by Jennifer Eel. You would remember her as Lizzie in Pride and Prejudice up against Colin Firth all those years ago. I imagine she's putting on an American accent. Yes, and she's played Americans often in the past and, in fact, lives in America now. But um, her character starts off as a young, impressionable girl in a country some, some, somewhere on the Irish coast where she comes up upon a movie being made and she gets a job as an extra, then she gets a job on the set and she gets a job with Miramax Pictures. Um, and it's just so sad, Corrie, and a lot of the characters are like this. Z- Zelda Perkins is another one, played by Samantha Morton. She's brilliant as well. Rowena Chu, another character, brilliant as well. Um They start off as these young, idealistic, wonderful, ambitious girls who fall in love with the movie industry and their dreams are are quite literally shattered and their lives are destroyed for a very, very long time. Um, Jennifer Eel's character, Laura Madden, in fact, um, decides finally to speak up as she's going into surgery to have a double mastectomy. She's suffering from breast cancer. And it's what her daughters say. And look, the interviews are brilliant. Some of them, the Zelda Perkins interview is a conversation in a cafe that runs, goes for nine minutes, but it is so moving. And one of the great things about this film is it shows how um, the editors of the New York Times supported their journos and how Megan Toohey, you know, played by Kerry Mulligan, comes on board to help Jodie Canto, um, this, the collegiate spirit of them all, the way they all help each other, the money they're prepared to spend for this investigation. Um, fascinatingly, Ashley Judd, the first whistleblower, plays herself, which is really interesting. You don't see Weinstein, you only see the back of his head and one actual police transcript is replayed this horrible scene with an Italian uh, young Italian actress there's also um, Gwyneth Paltrow but you only hear her on the phone I highly recommend this film everyone in the movie came out and started talking about it and they were angry well it it sounds like it has uh, Oscar nominations all over it which would be a, a bizarre twist wouldn't it seeing as Weinstein has won so many himself over the years it's interesting Carol you're talking about this New York Times report of um Tui and Cantors because at the time, if we go back to 2017, the one that I was most aware of at that time was, of course, Ronan Farrow's uh, amazing New Yorker reports. Uh, He gathered together the stories of the 13 women. And it does seem that although the New York Times and the New Yorker were working in in, in opposite camps and, of course, trying to outscoop one another, in the end, they kind of all come together. Is there any sense of Ronan Farrow and the New Yorker in this movie? Oh, definitely. He's referenced and there is a sense of we need to get this story first. But they're so careful, Corey. I'm just like, for heaven, just press send. They went, they took days after I would have, I would have, you know, done it to actually finally, they, they kept going back and back and back. And the Weinstein lawyer is actually brilliant as well. And some of the, the sources, are, it, look, it, it's a real cloak and dagger great investigative journalism story. And, yeah, Ronan Farrow is referenced. They're aware of what he's doing and, of course, they want to get there first. But, um, I mean, look, it's it's horrifying. And, you know, it is interesting that none of the board members of Miramax 
who obviously allowed all these non-disclosure agreements to go ahead and all this hush money to be paid and never named, you know. And it, But it does imply how complicit so many other people were in protecting this monster, really, against all these impressionable and horribly victimised young women. I can't wait to see it. She said. Caro, on to food. And as potties will remember from last week's episode, we had our Scrabble tournament weekend a couple of weeks ago and we all divvied up the chores of feeding and watering ourselves. And I think it was um, the Sunday night drink before dinner, wasn't it? And Mindy arrived with the most superb pass around food, an absolute winner for summer entertaining, I would suggest. Yes, so we're calling it Mindy's Avocado Hummus. You can find it uh, on the on the show notes. The ingredients are simple, Corrie. A tin of chickpeas, two medium ripe avocados, three tablespoons olive oil, a tablespoon tahini, a handful of spinach, three tablespoons fresh lime juice, two garlic cloves and some salt. Now you whiz it all together, basically. And what Mindy did, and she just tells us, you know, verbally, she actually added um, a big handful of fresh mint and juice of one lemon to her recipe, so more lemon. And um, she whizzed it all. But it was, you know, you can sprinkle it with um, ducker, duca or sesame seeds, roasted sesame seeds. She um, just sort of swirled it on the plate and sprinkled chilli flakes, sesame seeds and olive oil over it. And next time she thought she might roast some cherry tomatoes in balsamic and sprinkle them on top. But you could do it as a sort of base of a beautiful dish, surround it with a bit of rocket and put a piece of salmon or chicken on top. It is absolutely, or as a dip, it's beautiful. And so pretty, the colour. Oh, absolutely beautiful. Yeah, we we loved it. It was a sensational recipe, highly recommend. That was BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. And if you're interested in learning more, give Red Energy a call on 131806. On to being grumpy, Caro, your turn this week. What's, (laughs) gosh, line it up at the moment, starting with the weather. Now, what are you grumpy about? Well, the weather's an obvious one, but I'm moving off to, um, and this is a weather-related really, although that's a very small part of my grumpiness, about that horrific, misguided and greedy political decision made by FIFA all those years ago to award Qatar the hosting rights to the 2022 World Cup. This has been an event that they hoped um, the football would take over the politics, and it probably will as the tournament goes on, but at the moment... It's just a disaster. Only last night we had um, a New York, uh, a quite a respected New York soccer writer, football writer, detained for half an hour because he was wearing a rainbow T-shirt walking into a game, into a, a game involving the US. Detained for half an hour. Later, and um, one of his friends who he alerted to the fact that he was being detained by security, was also detained. Later they said, oh, we were just trying to protect you from audiences. You've got um, various countries wearing armbands, the English in particular, and being penalised for it. The time of year of this World Cup is just crazy. The weather was always going to be a massive problem if it was held when it shouldn't have, should have been held. And just a and there's already been documentaries about, you know, the decision behind this and how shameful it is. And Seth Blatter, the ruler who was part of the decision, has come out and said, you know, he well spoken of his regret. But I'm just so – I mean, it, it takes me back to Atlanta getting the Olympics all those years ago in 1996. Just a terrible decision. So bad for the sport and something that people own. You know, people love their sport. They own their sport. This is the biggest event in the world And it's just been so marred by this terrible decision. Two things came out of it overnight for me, Carol, and I agree with everything that you said there. Uh, There's no no, um, room for that sort of heavy-handedness, I think, in what should be collegiate and a wonderful celebration of the game. Uh, First of all, the captain of the French soccer team not being able to name one Australian player... (laughs) Well, that was just that was just competitive arrogance. <laughs> and, and the second, oh, it made me more determined to yell out "Go Aussie" in the top of my voice. And the second one was the Iran, Iranian team refusing to sing their national anthem as a form of protest. And I thought that was brave, extraordinary, 
and I do fear for them when they return home. Well, as you remember, Australia was um, one of the losing bidders for this tournament and how much better it would have been. But, no, it was just a, a terrible, terrible decision. I will throw in another story overnight where airlines are pushing the World Aviation Authority to reduce um, the mandated number of pilots in a plane from two to one. Ah. Um, this is clearly a cost-cutting ploy, and you know my views on Qantas, which I noticed finished outside the top ten in the most recent Condé Nast Traveller Reader's Choice Awards. I was happy to see. Um, but um, it's not just Qantas. A lot of the airlines are pushing for this, and former pilots are coming out in droves saying this will be a dangerous and dreadful decision. But, Corrie, it's time for six quick questions. Do you want to kick it off? I will. What's the best live show you've seen this week, Caro? And thank you, Red Energy, by the way, for sponsoring this segment. Oh, Corrie, I went and saw our friend Rebecca Bernard. She did um, another one of her Joni Mitchell tribute concerts. Um, it was a gorgeous, intimate event at the Albert Park Yacht Club on Albert Park Lake. Now, when was the last time you went to a venue, an event there? I don't think I have ever been to an event there. There were dips and bickies on arrival, pies and um, party pies in Frankfurt. Or as, Jane, as our friend Jane Lamington says, a drink and a dip on the deck. It, well, it was, and it was a, a rare, beautiful night. Rebecca is a beautiful singer. She nailed this show. Um, it's a, it's a two-man show, two-person show, Pete Farnan. People might remember Pete from Boom Crash Opera, but he's a a highly respected Australian guitarist. He's a musician. He doesn't only play guitar. He was on the piano. But his guitar work and the way they um, perform these Joni Mitchell songs was just beautiful. It was one of the more enjoyable nights I've had in recent times. Rebecca does a lot of other wonderful work. I mean, she's a great jazz performer. She's just a great, great live act with a beautiful voice, a beautiful girl, and um, it was a great show. So keep an eye out for her next one. Well, Caro, dare I say, the Sorrento Writers' Festival on the Saturday night, Saturday, April the 29th, Rebecca Bernard will be singing Joni Mitchell in the ballroom at the Continental in Sorrento. You know, Joni Mitchell is my favourite singer-songwriter ever. So anyway, it was great. What about you, Corrie? What's the best live show you've seen this week? Richard E. Grant, A Pocket Full of Happiness. <gasps> Which is why you couldn't come to Rebecca, because you already had tickets to I Richard, did. Correct? I know. My invitation list was just bursting that night. Uh, but I chose Richard E. Grant. I bought these tickets a while ago, originally to take uh, one daughter, Coco, she was unable to come, so the other one came off the interchange bench. So Francesca and I met Gina and Lily, and the four of us had a fantastic night. And it's a one-man show. Richard E. Grant bases it, it essentially it's his life in a chronological order, but it circles back each with each anecdote to his late wife Joan Washington, who died last year, who was a highly regarded, brilliant acting coach, sought after by so many of the world's great actors. And she met Richard, 10 years older than Richard, and she met Richard when he was a young man and they married and she sadly died of cancer last year. And this is a love letter, but a little bit of warts and all, a lot of humour, a lot of fun and a real lesson in uh, family love, dying with dignity. Oh, I mean, so many take-home messages. But the first part of the show was very much his nostalgic uh, his nostalgic romp and his memories of Joan and anecdotes. The second part, which was shorter, he takes questions from the audience. So everybody was invited to text in their um, question and some of them were hilarious. A great show. It's now moved on to uh, Sydney and um, New Zealand. But if he ever comes back again, please, everybody, make a note. Go and see Richard E. Grant live. He is a wonderful man and it's a great show. It was a really great night to be out. I've really enjoyed it. Haven't been to a live show since pre-COVID, I don't think. Well, that's not good enough, and I'm glad you start. I'm glad you're back on the horse. Back, back on the horse, Kara. Where does Tracy Grimshaw, who recently retired, where does she sit in the roll call of Australian women media heavy hitters for you? Well, I think she sits pretty high, Corey. I think to have held that role for close to two decades, hosting a current affair. And to give it the sort of dignity and gravitas that she's given it, I think she's done a brilliant job. I really do. I'm not really, it's not, I don't really watch current affairs shows anymore. But when she gets her big interviews, you do have to watch them because she always does, and you're reminded 
how talented he really is. He um, got into that role at a time. Well, I mean, you, you look at the people who hosted on the other channels, um, Lee Sales, you know, Naomi, Naomi Robson, who sort of disappeared after being very successful for a short time on Channel 7. But what, what she has done with a show that is probably famous for exposing petty crooks, really, isn't it? And um, looking at often um, household rip-offs, I just think she's managed to um, keep her own brand above all of that and do a brilliant job when need be and when she interviews politicians. Sadly, I think when politicians do come on the show, the show doesn't really rate and it's not something the Channel 9 audience has ever really wanted, but the big ones she does and she does brilliantly. So um, I think she's done a fabulous job. Yeah, great career, Tracy. Well done. Now, Corrie. Would you rather buy your husband, A, a hand drill, for heaven's sake, B, a golf club, or C, a new pillow? I would rather buy my husband a hand drill and a new golf club before I buy him a new pillow. Why? Caro, do you remember the anecdote of, uh, I don't know, maybe two, three, four years ago of um, Pete's scruffy pillow that he'd had since college? Yes. And but I threw it in the rubbish bin and he went and got it out again that night? Yes. So he yes. was furious with me. So college, I mean, in the American sense of the word, because that's where he did go to college in Buffalo Upstate. So that was that pillow. and It's his pillow after all. Oh, for goodness sake. It was just gross. So that went in the bin. And anyway, we had a sensible argument. But the fact that he'd actually gone outside in bare feet in the rain to get it out of the rubbish bin, was it just defied logic to me. This So new pillow bought... He likes them very, very soft, like with duck goose down, quite expensive, I would suggest to you. So I bought this new one at great expense and he said... They are expensive. They are very expensive. You use them for 10, eight hours a day or... Well, it is is an important purchase, it's right, but he loved this one. So uh, it has been uh, losing its feathers in the last few changes of the pillow slips I've noticed and then... This yesterday when I was stripping the bed, I took the pillow out of the old pillow slip and feathers went everywhere. It had burst. So oh, no. He was actually working from home and I came out of the oh. bedroom. I was covered in feathers. Thank God I hadn't put on any body oil or anything because I would have looked like a duck. And I came out and I said, this is it. We have to throw this out. Well, 15 minutes, I reckon, of discussing so last night I found, I found another soft pillow in the house and I and he just like complained for the first 20 minutes. I can't get comfortable. I can't get comfortable. And then he took my pillow. Well, I was so happy to have him just shut up on the topic. I let him have my pillow, which was um, not a great career move for me because I have a sore neck this morning. But I have to go and buy this man a new pillow. And really, I would rather buy a hand drill and a golf club at the same time. Oh, I love going pillow shopping. Although I remember taking Clem pillow shopping when she moved moved out of home, and um, I thought, oh, these look fabulous. My favourite shop, the bedspread shop in Glenfrew Road, Melbourne, one of my favourite shops in the in um, the country. And they gave me the bill for the two pillows, and I said, no, scratch that. We'll go back to the, <laughs> we'll go back to the B grade filling or whatever it was. They're so expensive. They're so expensive, and I, like, I still buy inexpensive dunas from Ikea just because I can't get myself over the line for a $500 duna. Anyway, that's just me. So, Caro, on to Christmas. Name three Christmas jobs you've ticked off the list this week. Oh, gosh, you're organised. Smug. Well, I've decorated the tree. because It's I'm going too early. Away. It's bad luck to do it early. It's too you early. You know what? I'm going away, as you know, for a brief trip next week, and when I get back it will be after December 1. So mm. it has well, it's to be It's supposed to be the 12 days of Christmas. You put it up the 12th day and you take it down 12 days after. No, 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 no. You put it up on the 1st of December. No, and, no, no, no. And you're you supposed take to it put it up on the 12th. After Christmas. Miss Jane is now Googling to see which one of us is correct here. Well, I, I, dis, I firmly say that you're not going to just put it up for 12 days. You keep it going after Christmas for 12 days. Well, look, I hope there's no pox on your houses for this terrible error. But anyway, what's the, what are the other two things on the list? Posted the um, parcel off to Amsterdam for my son, Ned. Via Australia Post. Zoe. Via Australia Post. It'll get there probably in March. Yep. Well, they're, they're claiming 10 days. So that is very exciting. And I've included his Christmas stocking in the package. Um, what do you do? Oh, and cleaned out the freezer because you have to have 
an empty freezer at Christmas mm-hmm. or at summer. And I, the things I found in that freezer, and I reckon I only cleaned it out six months ago, but they're the three things I've done. What do you do with all your left? No one helped me with my how, we, how to grow um, hibiscus successfully. No, we haven't heard Potties. anything on that. No response. So clearly that's a too hard basket. All the leftover Christmas crackers. So you know when you buy, you can only buy them in packs of six and say you have 10 people or 20 people. You never have the exact amount, do you? So you might need to buy one extra or two extra and another whole six. I have found stray bonbons going back, oh, I reckon about six years, and none of them match. I mean, I might oh, have three you know here, what? four uh, there. Uh, this, is, uh, this is beyond a first world problem. So, Carol, what I you know. should do is you, you should just have a... Just a, a an off-piste Christmas table, and everybody has a different bonbon. And don't worry about your colour coordination. Just oh, be just really? be brave. Dive in and do it. Well, we're going offshore for Christmas, and um, I'm on bonbons, and I think it might be a bit rude to bring non-matching bonbons. Oh no, I don't think you could take it to someone's house. IKEA have some nice. You, you, there are lots of lovely bonbons around, but the following year, if you're hosting. If I hear that you have gone out and bought new bonbon boxes, I will be very cross with you knowing that there are about 25 in your linen press. Uh, Maybe Jane, I'll Jane, have an ad hoc. Miss Jane is putting up her hand. She probably makes them, Jane. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm just tracking back to when you should put up your Christmas tree, ladies. Housebeautiful.com says tradition dictates Christmas trees should be put up at the beginning of Advent, which is the fourth Sunday before Christmas this year being the 27th of November. Oh, no. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You didn't know what four weeks of Advent was. You don't even know well, what I... Advent is. Uh, Corrie, of course I do. I have an advent calendar every year. And what's more, well, I I would say loosely it's December 1, loosely, and I'm not going to be here. What's the point of having a lovely – I know a friend who lives around the corner from me who kept a Christmas tree up. It was so beautiful for the whole year and just rolled it on. No, no, you can't do that. Well, we buy a real one so so the pine needles would start dropping off. Anyway, we um, remember remember the whole um, evil – what was his name? Evil the, Knievel. Um, no, the the um, and and it became a racial thing in Amsterdam. I talked about it. Oh in yes, Sooty Pete, Sooty Pete, Sooty Pete. Yeah, they had to change his name. <laughs> anyway, Corrie, speaking of, what is this week's amazing fact? This is the history of the office Christmas party, Caro. Oh, on on a roll, on a Christmas roll. So, in forty five BC, the Roman Emperor Emperor Julius Caesar turned up at a holiday party with two thousand of his soldiers at the home of Cicero, who was one of his uh, um, more ambitious and interesting statesmen and also a writer as well. And they turned up at Cicero's house in Naples and they were fresh from the conquests of Egypt and Spain. And Cicero was known as a bit of a party animal and they uh, they turned on a do for these 2,000 soldiers and it was the Feast of Saturn. Now, the Saturnalia which who was a Roman, their the, the celebration is called Saturnalia and it is always traditionally um, in Roman mythology being the festival of the god Saturn. The Saturnalia, as we know, is the very early, the start of uh, Christmas, the Christmas tradition. And anyway, at this party at Cicero's, gifts were exchanged, masters and slaves swapped roles, there was drinking, there was feasting and there was singing naked. Sounds interesting. Oh. So so that was that. We fast forward to Victorian England and the modern holiday office party can be traced to the novels of Charles Dickens, in particular A Christmas Carol. At one point in the story, Ebenezer Scrooge rocks up to the home of a f- former employer, a chap called Old, Old Fezziwig, and Fezziwig's annual Christmas party we think is modern English literature's first holiday office party. Now, um, money was given and Scrooge thought that this was a very curious custom. On we go, Caro, to post-war America, setting its own agenda as post-war America did, and particularly when it came to the office Christmas party. Think Mad Men, okay? Just think Mad Men. Absolutely outrageous. Women, of course, had joined the workforce in big numbers. Uh, The the get-togethers were... um, somewhat risque, you might say. And I love this quote from The New Yorker. A reporter wrote, 
1951. The annual office party starts along about noon on December 24 and ends two or three months later, depending on how long it takes the boss to find out who set fire to his wastebasket, who threw out the water cooler out the window, and who betrayed Miss O'Malley in the men's washroom. (laughs) Anyway... um, On we go to the 70s, the biggest Christmas party on record in the Guinness Book of Records, the biggest Christmas office office Christmas party, 1979, Boeing. The company Boeing had uh, 103,000 people to their office party. In the late 1980s and 1990s, Caro, economic insecurity, caution and social concerns, and everybody had a sense of this is too this is too indulgent. So a lot of party money actually went to donations to the homeless and other causes. And then, of course, there was the arrival of Christmas bonuses, which then became performance-driven incentives. Wiley employees cottoned on to the fact that the office party did offer them important opportunities to network and further one's career. So they actually started acquiring skills and training and strategies for going to the Christmas party. Stay on your guard and don't drink too much and beware of lawsuits. And, of course, in the era of hashtag Me Too and the post-hashtag Me Too era, everybody is aware of new, new governance imperatives and government legislation probably putting a stop to a lot of the traditional bad behaviour of the office Christmas party. Um, so uh, just to finish off, mentalfloss.com, which is a website I often go to for facts and figures. It's so interesting. They found it's, they, they blew, blew apart the myth that the Christmas party was a good way to foster and strengthen work relationships and get a pay rise. A 2007 Columbia University study found that most peop- employees who go to an office party stick to their existing circle of office friends and they all get drunk together. <laughs> well, no one mixes. <laughs> And um, and it doesn't have very much impact on office dynamics. So that's it, Caro. That is the um, that is the the history of the office party. I don't think in twenty twenty two we will be seeing people putting their bare bottoms on the photocopier or nearly nude Santas dancing on tables or anything else like that. Um, probably the era of the office party is over. I would suggest. Careers have ended more recently with office parties and um, kisses in the stairwell are a thing of the past. So wasn't that an interesting little Christmas fact for you today? It was great, Corrie. It was brilliant. <laughs> and what an interesting show we've had today, even though... A Car- deep dive into Christmas parties and um, I've triumphed on the Christmas tree argument, so you- I'm happy. <laughs> you, so long as you win, Cara, that's all we care about. That's no, all we care about. I'm just happy to have my <laughs> Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Thank you, of course, to our producer, Miss Jane Neald, who is always at the ready with Google. And um, thanks for shooting down my argument, Janie, there on the Christmas tree. And thank you to everybody for listening and, of course, to our sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store. And don't forget those specials that Miles mentioned, the rosé specials. You can find them, princewinestore.com.au. And if you'd like to follow us or leave a message, don't forget Instagram is a really good way and we are the, the account is called Don't Shoot Pod, so easy to find. And of course, if you want to contact us, feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. And Cara, before we go, I just want to say happy birthday to my two November babies who are having birthdays this week Coco and Francesca. Love you lots. And Caro, hope to see you very soon in the flesh. And what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger and we invite you to join us at our live event. Thanks to Red Energy on Wednesday the 14th of December at quarter past 10 to watch us record a podcast and have morning tea with Caro and Corrie. Tickets are limited. You'll find the booking link in the show notes. That's Wednesday the 14th of December. Come and have a morning tea with Caro and Corrie. Thanks to Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas.